Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of The Legal Wolf which is a podcast designed to raise awareness of mental health and of the professionals who work within the sector. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Kia. Hi Kia. Hi Steve, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Yourself? I am all right. It's been a long day. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, th- this is going to be the bit that um, brings everything to life. Yes, well, fingers crossed it does. So, to begin with, for the listeners, would you be able to introduce yourself and give a bit of background as to who you are and also why you decided to become an occupational therapist? Okay, so in terms of who I am, um, so I'm, I am an occupational therapist. I am somebody who's worked in the NHS for about 20 years. Um, I think over the past 10 years, I've specialised in working with people who who often use self-harm as a way of coping, um, recurrently feel suicidal, have difficulties with their relationships, and, and they tend to be given a diagnosis of personality disorder, which I think is a really unhelpful diagnosis. But that's, that's the group that I work with. Um, and, and I suppose in some ways, it's uh, it's not an obvious route for an occupational therapist to go down. Mm-hmm. I think I started off thinking I'd be a physiotherapist many, many years ago. Okay. And when I made a right mess of my, my parents split up in the middle of my year of A-levels, and, uh, and I came to pick up my results, and I didn't... Um, I didn't have the grades I wanted, but I didn't have any offers for university either. So I spent uh, a, a frantic couple of days trying to get on a course to do anything connected with therapy. Mm. And some people said, uh, oh, well, would you do occupational therapy? And I went, yeah, yeah, all right then. And then because this was a million years ago, we didn't have the internet. So I had to walk down to the library to find out what it was. Um, so I totally got into occupational therapy accidentally. Um probably spent my first year thinking, oh, I could probably get into physio somehow. I might be able to transfer in some way. And then I did my first mental health placement in the second year. And I knew that that was for me then. I thought that's that's what I'm going to throw myself into. That's going to be the thing that keeps me interested and and just brings something different that I didn't have in my life at the time. Um, So that's kind of how I got into... um, occupational therapy and mental health um and then probably over the past couple of years i've recognized how the profession often doesn't go into areas that are kind of traditionally seen as maybe more nursing or psychology or psychotherapy kind of backgrounds and i've been really pushing for our profession to be seen as as useful in that area yeah so we'll come on to the reason for you specialising with people who have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. But just explain what the role of a OT involves. Okay. Um, so occupational therapists get dual trained. So you can work in physical health or you can work in mental health. Um, okay. With the idea being that the process is the same. So what we are interested in doing, people often say, do you help people get jobs and do you help people with bad backs? Um, And I suppose we could do both. But our focus is on helping people do what they want to do and what they need to do. Um, 
and often we will help people do that through different forms of activity um, and you can think of anything that you want to do or need to do is an occupation that's why we use the term uh, so um, I might want to play the guitar you know that might bring some pleasure and enjoyment into my life I might need to earn money in some way I might have, have some kind of vocation Within that, we've got skills that we use to be able to do the things we want and need to do. So occupational therapists might teach skills for people um, if people either didn't learn them or if they've had something happen to their body that means that they can't do what they used to do. We might teach people new things of do teach people new things to be able to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally, we can change the environment around people as well. So in physical health, um, you might see somebody um, adapting somebody's house, maybe building a bathroom downstairs. Um, we can change the environment around them in that way. In mental health, it can be a bit more difficult to do that, but we can really work on challenging the stigma that people are fighting against. We can really push people to respond to people in the way that's most helpful if we're not able to help that person themselves to to do things that are going to get more of what they want and what they need in their life. Um, I think sometimes people say that... Um, some professions can help people to manage their symptoms and occupational therapists really try and help people to live um to bring that kind of richness and quality into their lives and i think that's what i've kind of fell in love with doing yeah and what led to you to specialize in helping people with a borderline personality disorder because it, it doesn't seem the most conventional route for an ot to go so there was a time when I was working in a community mental health team yeah. and for whatever reason people seemed to think I was quite good at holding relationships with people um, uh, so that when they started doing a therapeutic community aimed at helping people who would get a diagnosis of personality disorder somebody came up and said Kia do you want to work in this and I said no why would I want to do that um, and then I found out more about it and this idea of every member of the group has got the same level of power so when somebody wants to join the group it's all the members who decide whether they get a place if somebody's acted in a way that the group can't tolerate it's the members that decide what happens next so the staff aren't in charge all of the members are and that was such a radically different way of working yeah i just i just became really interested in it um so i got seconded into that service for a year and two and a half years later i was dragged out of it really annoyed that i couldn't carry on um but i just recognized that this client group who got a really hard time in services i just recognized that we could do something that was a lot more helpful um so i wanted to help those people more and i wanted to help clinicians and practitioners who had struggled as much as I had to to be better in the way that they worked with them. Um, so I, I tried to find another specialist service to work in, so that meant I moved to the other end of the country. I didn't even move, I commuted to the other end of the country. Um, did a few years in a specialist service there. I did a master's degree in personality disorder while I was there. I yeah. became a DBT therapist, so DBT is a particular therapy that's seen as useful for people who self-harm and recurrently feel suicidal. Mm-hmm. 
And then I moved from that team to another specialist team, and, and it was a really marked difference. So the first one was a place that thought that people could be worked with at home, um, that even if there were quite high risks in people's lives, it was better to try and help them while keeping power with them, as opposed to locking them up and forcing them to stop doing whatever it was they were doing. Yeah. Um, and I suppose part of the reason they did that is that when we force people to stop doing the things they do to manage to distress, they just do it in a way that's more dangerous. Um, and I think we, we saw that happening in my first job, so I wanted to avoid that. So then I went to work in another specialist service and people were very keen to lock people up there and it was almost the first line intervention that if somebody came in self-harming, thoughts of not wanting to live, that that they, they would be detained quite quickly and for long, long periods of time. And it was really, really hard to see people who you knew if they lived in another part of the country, they would be helped at home in their community. Whereas in this place, they were wrenched out of their community. They would generally lose their tenancy and they'd get sent hundreds of miles away to hospitals that were very, very often quite inadequate. Um, so there's, there's only so long you can watch that happening without thinking something something different has got to happen here. Um, and yeah. so I went from that to kind of working independently and trying to help these people a bit more. Um, Okay. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got there. So, in terms of the way that people are treated who have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, does that differ if you're in a private hospital to an NHS hospital? I mean, it, it's probably different. Um, I don't know if you can say it was better or not, but um, I think traditionally staff in mental health don't really get taught that much about what is described as personality disorder and we really don't get kind of taught that when we're looking at these people who've got this label we're actually working with people who have lived through a lot of awfulness in their lives so there's some studies that say up to 80 percent of people who get this diagnosis have lived through some serious neglect abuse abandonment um and even then, I've never met anybody with a diagnosis whose difficulties weren't really understandable in terms of what they've lived through. And we don't get taught that. So what we get is people who are doing some things that are quite dangerous. Our instinct is to force them to stop. They react against that. They do things that are more dangerous. We become more restrictive. And then if you're a staff member who like, comes to work to try and make people better, and you find yourself restraining people, you find them hurting themselves. It's really hard to think that you're good at your job. It's really hard to think you're effective. And it's very, very easy to blame that person for inverted commas and making you feel the way you do. Um, so what what we often kind of saw happening was that, you know, people would be stuck on wards, this cycle would be going on. You couldn't discharge them because they were more dangerous now than when they arrived. So people would kind of think, well, the answer is to send them to somewhere specialist. But the difficulty is that the places that advertise themselves as specialist very rarely have any specialism. Um, 
So I kind of went to a unit recently and people were like, oh, we're glad that you're here because of your background because we don't know anything about this client group. And it's really hard to marry that with a place that's got specialist unit written above the door. Yeah. But it's just so common. Um, and we'd often find that, you know, the... The therapy on offer wasn't one that NICE would say is effective for this group of people. If something was on offer, it was often delivered by people who were um, who were not qualified to deliver that therapy. And often it was really, really restrictive. Um, so you'd kind of have people, you know, in rip-proof clothes, in bare rooms to make sure there was no way they could hurt themselves. But in some ways they were living in hell. And it's the idea that, that they would live in hell until their self-esteem improved. And, you know, that, that's just so far from what is recommended for people. Um, so it, it's really hard to kind of say, is something better or worse? You know, I'd say yeah. our NHS acute wards are mm-hmm. definitely not set up to be helpful for people who get this diagnosis. But at least they kind of admit that. Whereas I think yeah. the places that say we are specialist and then don't offer anything that kind of fits with what NICE would say is helpful for this client group. That that seems worse to me in a way. That seems to be somewhat duplicitous. Um, so, you know, I, I think the NHS definitely has the capacity to offer effective services to people in the community. But I think because the NHS is often quite scared of, you know, what will... What will happen if, if something bad happens? Am I going to get blamed for it? Am I going to lose my registration? Will our organisation get blamed? And then I think a way of managing that anxiety is for that person to be somewhere else. So if that person is in a private hospital, the NHS is never going to get blamed if something untoward happens there. Um, so I often see that the kind of moving people into the private sector with this diagnosis is is a way of making sure the NHS kind of escapes some blame. But it's never framed like that. It's always kind of framed as, you know, this is in the patient's best interest. This is this yeah. is going to be where they get the expert help, whether people believe that or not. Yes. And if we take it back a few steps, so in terms of the definition of a borderline personality disorder, how would you be able to define that to the people listening to this podcast so there's there's two different books with criteria that uh, lay down the um, the criteria for the disorder um, yeah. so if we were going to take the diagnostic and statistical manual number five it's the manual they use in america but it's just easier to explain it using that one Um, so to get a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder you need to hit five of the nine criteria so there are things in there such as um inappropriate anger frantic efforts to avoid abandonment um self-harm um, recurrently feeling suicidal, um, periods of kind of paranoia, um, and I can't rattle all nine of them off my head. Yeah. Right? But but what you're what you will generally meet in a in a clinic for somebody who's got this diagnosis is is somebody who copes in ways that can be quite destructive. Um, so often for me that's cutting or overdosing. Um, but it could be a number of things that are 
perhaps less obviously damaging. So it might be substance misuse. Um, it might be um, getting into relationships that are quite dangerous, but some way of managing emotional distress that can cause problems. And then difficulties with relationships as well. So that kind of frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, it often means that people have kind of lived through experiences where either nobody cared for them so that the people who did care had to be hung on to, or just to be left alone was, was dangerous. So again, you know, it makes sense that people would want to hold on to the caring people in their lives. Um, but I think what we often kind of see then in, in a clinical um, world is somebody who becomes more distressed at the idea of discharge or falls apart at the idea of somebody in their care leaving. Um, and again, you know, I, I think we can, on one hand, we can kind of say, well, these people have a, a, a disorder of their personality. But I think the reality is that these people have lived through some awful experiences. Um, yes. So, again, those efforts to avoid being abandoned, that might make sense. Um, inappropriate anger, whoever is defining what is appropriate <laughs> or not. You know, a lot of these people have got something to be angry about. A yeah. lot of them have lived through some massive injustices. Um, and then if they're in a situation where, you know, they're being stopped from going out, stopped from doing what they would normally do to manage their distress it wouldn't make sense that there was some emotion and, and anger about that. Um, so in some ways, you know, I think lots of doctors could get together and say, oh, yes, that person's got borderline personality disorder. But in another way, I think the, these difficulties, they make sense in kind of response to trauma and adversity. And I think it's probably a lot easier to think about people like that. Um, yeah. Has that explained it? Was that yeah, no, that, that was great. And in, in terms of COVID that obviously everyone's currently living through at the moment, I imagine that with people with borderline personality disorder, if they're not allowed to go out on, for instance, Section 17 leave, then would that exacerbate their problem as such because they're not having the time to go out and have a bit of me time for instance uh so i suppose i'll just correct you right i'm going to try and encourage you to say people with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder because okay. i'm really not keen on kind of um thinking of people as as having disordered personalities yeah um, so that would be the first one right i suppose your second question so i think we could think of people as well they're mentally ill um so if they're if they're not able to go out their mental health deteriorates so i think we could probably think of it in that yeah but also i think we can pathologize what are really normal reactions so yes i think people who are detained in hospital who cannot get out will be sad as a result of that whether that is a deterioration in their mental health or not is another thing Do you know i think that's a yeah. really appropriate reaction to already being in a very restrictive environment that has become more restrictive um where you have less autonomy and where you have less sunlight and less ability to interact with the world so i think it would definitely make a difference whether it disproportionately affects people is, is, an, is another question yeah and in in relation to people who have a borderline personality diagnosis do you feel that they're 
stay in hospital is prolonged compared to, for instance, someone who suffers with bipolar or schizophrenia? So it, it can go either way, right? Um, so what I think hospitals and psychiatry does very well is is respond to acute psychotic states and people who have extremes of mood they kind of think right we know what we are doing here we are medicating we are stabilizing and, and i think people feel confident with what they're doing with people with this diagnosis i think people don't feel as confident in their interventions so in some ways that might mean that people never get through the door of a hospital um so there's there's an idea that people with this diagnosis don't do well in hospital. And to some extent, that is my experience, right? If you are yeah. prevented from doing what you normally do to cope, things get worse. But having kind of blanket rules that people aren't allowed in, I think is thoroughly unhelpful. Um, yeah. So certainly some people find it hard to get through the door. But then once you do get through the door, if you have been cutting in a controlled way, in the community um and then you are stopped from doing that it's not like that need disappears um so i think people who are stopped from cutting will then start headbanging um yeah. will then start tying things around their neck um and then it's 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 really hard because the staff are doing what they think is in their best interest we will stop this person hurting themselves but then people end up doing things that are significantly more lethal um and then we get really stuck so and that's when admissions seem to go on for ages because how could we possibly justify discharging this person who is so much worse than they arrived we need to keep them in this environment that isn't really recommended until they respond yeah um, and that's where i often see people who have admissions that last years and years and years Okay, and have there been any complex cases that you've been involved in whereby you've had a successful result, for example, at a mental health tribunal? Um, well, I suppose in some ways they're all fairly complex. Um, and, and one of the things that I've started doing in, in the last couple of years is trying to get to mental health tribunals. Um, and, and whether this is a success or not, um, there's people who do not want to be detained. Yeah. And I find myself going to private hospitals, people describe what they're doing there in their reports, and it's just unrecognisable from what NICE recommend. So when you're arguing before the panel that, you know, on the one hand, you have the hospital saying they just need to stay here in this environment that's not recommended while we prescribe medication that isn't recommended and we are not offering any recommended therapy but they just need to stay here until they get better i'll generally be saying well can can we see how much worse things are now than before they were admitted can we recognize that in the community they did these things which were dangerous but now look at how lethal their ways of coping are they are utterly reliant on people finding them in time and stopping them from doing things which was never the case outside of an environment like this so let's get them out of this environment 
this therapy is not recommended, so let's get them some therapy that is recommended. This medication is not recommended. Let's think about this medication a bit more. And people generally recognise that, actually, this level of restriction isn't recommended. It makes sense that people would react badly to an environment that is not recommended for them. So let's yeah. lower that level of restriction. And in terms of having some success, I have yet to go to a, a panel and make that argument and not see somebody be discharged from their section. Um, and in some ways, that's brilliant. Yeah. And in other ways, I just think of how many more people are trapped in this kind of very Kafkaesque world where you have to stay in the place that you do this thing until you stop doing it, as opposed to going into the place where you were so much safer and were able to look after yourself so much more. And, and often, I think, if you have that kind of conversation in clinical meetings, people are wary and they don't want to yeah. do the thing that they can get blamed for. But in the tribunal, it seems to be a place where people can weigh up the facts and say, well, they, we can't detain him any yeah. longer because he is obviously making things so much worse. And in terms of the NICE guidelines that you've mentioned, mm-hmm. what kind of medication is recommended and what kind of treatment is recommended? So there is no medication that's recommended specifically for borderline personality disorder. Um, And in some ways you could kind of say that's quite weird because it's rare to meet someone who isn't on an antidepressant, an antipsychotic, a mood stabiliser, and and a couple of benzodiazepines as well. Uh, So despite the kind of emphasis on not prescribing just for that, despite having a quality standard on not providing antipsychotics in the long term, people get prescribed this stuff. Um, So the emphasis is on therapy. Uh, So there's a couple of structured therapies that have got um, a decent evidence base in this area. Um, There's the idea that in some ways it doesn't matter so much which therapy you're doing as long as it's got a decent structure and evidence base. Um, but what you'd often find in, like I said, in, in, in these units is just people who aren't trained doing a bit of off-the-cut stuff. Um, yeah. Nice recommend working collaboratively with people, so kind of doing with and not doing to. Uh, they talk about trying to build community services. So the places that I have worked that use um, private hospitals a lot they don't have effective community services in place um, and they're very wary um, about risk um, because they haven't got a specialist service to to help them think about that differently. Um, And that's probably the main gist of the important points. But in some ways, it's kind of treat people with respect and, you know, don't... um, Probably one of the big ones is use hospital for crisis, um, yeah. whereas you know a lot of places will detain people for months and years on end, and uh, so long after the crisis has gone. And I see people who are kind of sitting in hospital just in case, and they might do this thing again. So we have to kind of keep them until all of this therapy that could be done in the community has been done. Um, so again, that emphasis on detention for crisis, but ending that compulsory treatment as early as possible. 
okay. which often doesn't happen. And just, just to kind of say, you know, a lot of these people are people who have had things done to them. So yeah. it would make sense if the people who are supposed to care do things to them that it's not going to make things better. If you are somebody who has experienced some kind of sexual trauma, then having three people on a hospital board hold you down, pull your clothes off and inject you with something, so yeah. there's no way that that can't replay some of your most painful experiences. And yet we hope that people will get better there. Um, and my experience is that they don't, things, things get worse and they get stuck. Yeah, the one thing that surprised me was that there was no medication that was recommended, <clears throat> which in my mind begs the question, well, if there's no medication recommended and it's primarily therapy-led, then why are psychiatrists medicating? Oh, well, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, in some ways, you could ask, oh, let's, let's do the, the kind of more empathic explanation first. So, people definitely have difficulties. Yeah. They definitely have difficulties with very intense and strong emotion. Um, so, you can argue that some antipsychotics will stop people being as impulsive Um you could say that people have got lives that would induce sadness in anyone, but you can yeah. also say that people are quite miserable. Um, so it makes sense that antipsychotics would be prescribed. Um, I'm not sure as much on the evidence base for the, for the moon stabilizers. Um, and, and the diazepams, you know, they, they are a dampening down and a calming. So if you have people again, who are feeling emotion very intensely, it would make sense that people would want to prescribe something, uh, prescribe something that would bring that intensity down. So those would make sense. Um, when you kind of read what is written about uh, prescribing for people this diagnosis, there was a guy called John Gunderson who was quite famous in the field, and he was okay. writing about a recent study that said that one mood stabilised uh, in particular doesn't work. It's no more effective than placebo and we should stop prescribing it. And he was kind of saying, well, does that mean that psychiatrists should stop prescribing? No, it doesn't, because prescribing helps build relationships. And I was thinking, God, I don't know. The only other people I know who use drugs to build relationships are, are people often selling substances on the streets. That, that, yeah. that feels a really inappropriate thing to say. But... Um, I think, you know, there are some brilliant psychiatrists out there. There are psychiatrists that I work with that I have the utmost respect for. But I think even they would say that when you are confronted by someone in distress and your tools are medication, you will want to alleviate that distress. You will want to do something that feels useful. And it's, it's probably easier to prescribe something than have a conversation about why you're not. Um, but I think people do kind of get caught up in very convoluted chemical cocktails. Um, and some yes. people find medications really helpful for them. You know, let's not, let's not throw all the medication away. But something definitely happens with this client group that means that they get one medication and another and another and another. Um, and I'm writing something at the moment about the use of um, clozapine for, for people who get this diagnosis. And... Um, 
so it, it's it just it's so rare for it to be prescribed in the community but i do see it prescribed in the locked units that are out of area yeah. and and then you wonder well it do they have this medication because they are so severe and that's why they're in there? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it that those units that are a bit further away from the gates of the NHS, is that where the more maverick practices take place? Um, and I lean towards that, that argument. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a, f- a fascinating idea of people with that diagnosis being treated with clozapine uh, what's the early evidence data that you've been able to get for your article that, that you're writing are, are there pros and cons for prescribing clozapine so there is no randomized controlled trial for it at the moment okay so the, okay. the quality of the evidence isn't fantastic but what has been published would would say that it's good. You know, they, there's a lot of studies talking about bringing down aggression. Um, there is one qualitative paper of people taking it and saying, "I find this useful. Um, this is useful for me." Now, I, I I read that, and obviously that has an effect. You know, I can I can see what's written. I can see that it's there, and then I just think of my experience of people, you know doubling, trebling their body weight. Um, People who were quite active and had a spark about them are suddenly so lethargic. Um, And people are telling them that they've got no motivation and that they're lazy when they cannot get out of bed. Um, So there's something that when I watch people taking glossopine, it feels like something really untoward is happening. And and it, it... I, I get a sense of, you know, this this doesn't feel right. I, I have a gut feeling that this doesn't feel right. Um, yeah. And then when I was looking for something that would back up my sense that there's, there's something not right about this, there was nothing. There was nothing written about any concern about prime, um, prescribing what is probably seen as a kind of, Perhaps not last resort, but you'd only prescribe it for somebody with a schizophrenia diagnosis after a few yeah. other drugs haven't been effective. You know, so there's there's something about using this on primarily young women and watching them balloon that feels really unsettling. Yeah. Um, and then I've got a colleague called Dan Warrender, who is a great guy up in Scotland, um, in the university up there, and he found this article where Italian psychiatrists were interviewed, and they say, what do you think about um, prescribing clozapine for BPD? And it was something like 78% of them thought that it was either inappropriate or highly inappropriate, and that is the only thing that I have ever found that validates my sense that something untoward is going on. So mm. there's not the evidence, there's not the quality evidence to say this should be prescribed because it is so effective. Nice to saying, don't prescribe any antipsychotics long-term, let alone ones with this side effect profile. Yeah. But it's happening, and... Yeah, I'm so, so kind of really wanting to write about it because 
no one else seems to be talking about it. And then you kind of wonder, you know, is, is it just that we're flat earthers denying the evidence in front of our eyes? Or is it a bit more emperor's new clothes and lots of people can see that there's something wrong going on here, but it's yes. just not being spoken about. So we really want to get it spoken about. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the next topic I would like to discuss would be around the stigma of people with a personality diagnosis um and where we are now and how far we have come in the last 10 years and what further work needs to be done to challenge and reduce the stigma okay a three-part question let's, yes let's have a go um <laughs> So where have we come from then? So if we think that in 2003, no longer a diagnosis of exclusion was published, and that was a paper that pretty much said, we are failing this group of people. We are not letting them into services. We are telling them that they can't be helped. Um, we're convincing ourselves that there's nothing that we can do that's effective. And that paper kind of said, but we can be useful. We can do things that are helpful to this client group. And I suppose the next step from that was nice guidelines coming out in 2009 saying these people are the work of the NHS. There's no kind of choosing not to work with them because they don't fit your definition of what an illness or disorder is. These people are our work. Um, so I think that was really helpful and that kind of brought in the idea that um, people could do something useful. And I suppose in that time, we've also had therapies such as dialectical behaviour therapy, which has built an evidence to say we can be helpful to people. We can reduce suicidal urges. We can improve people's quality of life. Um, so I think that has done something as well. But um, like I said, our training to work with people who've had trauma in their lives is quite poor. So people are kind of coming into services fresh from university um, and then staff who've never had any training and have more experience of finding this client group difficult are kind of teaching them some fairly unhelpful ways of responding. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's still that stigma there. The stigma that tends to be there um, is often around the idea that, you know, people are attention-seeking. Um, and you can kind of think, well, you know, if, if somebody has grown up in a place where if they screamed at volume 11 and no one responded their ways of getting their needs met aren't going to be the same as if you've come from whatever a normal background is. You know, yeah. If you asked for help and you were hurt, it would make sense that your ways of asking for help are different to, again, whatever a normal background is. Um, if the only way that you could survive was to have people with you and caring for you, again, it makes sense that you go to huge efforts to make that happen. So I think when we label somebody's attention seeking, what we often forget is, well, why are they acting in the way that they are? Why does it make sense? What is the benefit for them? What does it do? Am I doing something that makes this more likely or less likely to happen in future? Um, we stop thinking about that and we blame the person for coping in the way that they have been taught to cope. Probably a really big example of that, you know, is I was working with somebody who um, who would be quite violent when they were on, on a ward and yeah. people just thought of them as being bad people. And they were talking about when they were young and they would go to their parents and say, you know, my, my friends won't play with me. And their parents would say, well, go and beat them up, go and hurt them. 
And it makes sense then that violence is, is a way of solving problems because the people that they looked up to taught them that that was how you had to cope. They'd had a different kind of instruction and morality to the rest of us. And that doesn't mean that it's okay, yeah. but that it's understandable, that we don't mm-hmm. have to castigate people and blame them for the problems that, that they grew up in um, and that society didn't protect them from when they were younger. So I suppose that's one thing that people often say is kind of attention-seeking. Another one that people often say is manipulative. Um, people who've got personality sort of manipulate people. And if you think about manipulation as being a kind of skillful, artful way of um, controlling others, then if somebody's manipulating, if somebody's being really skillful, then how come all these nurses and OTs and other people can spot that it's happening? Yeah, yeah. There's not some skillful manipulation <laughs> going on. What you're seeing is people who have got, you know, often fairly poor ways of getting their needs met. Um, what you're seeing is people who, um, again, have been taught ways of interacting that, that, that don't, don't, don't work anymore. Um, but again, that's very different from somebody being cunning and skillful and artful. Our skillful manipulators are our politicians who talk yep. to people, get things done and keep them liking them. You know, they're people like our diplomats. They're, they're good at manipulation. The people that we're talking about are awful at it. And yet we blame them and um, and, and put this label on them. Um, so yeah, uh, the kind of manipulative, attention-seeking, and then because people have got that reputation, it kind of like tarnishes everything else that they do. So if you're on a ward and you like one person more than another, if you want to spend more, more time with one nurse than another, sometimes people say, "Oh, they're splitting. They're trying to split the team up." Whereas that's a quite a natural thing, isn't it? You don't like everybody in your life exactly the same. You know, you have yeah. people that you prefer to spend time with. You have people that you warm to or you don't. Yeah. And we would accept that if we were in a pub looking at different people. We'd say, well, that makes sense. But in a ward, in a CMHT, we will judge people for this because of the label that's been put on them. Um, so there's definitely a lot of stigma about... Now, is it changing? And I think it is changing. Um, I think there is an idea that we cannot treat this group of people like this anymore. Um, And you've got recent papers coming out. So, like, the um, consensus statement that came out had bodies like the British Psychological Society saying we should stop using the term personality disorder. Um, Lots of lived experience people saying my personality is not disordered i don't want to be thought of in this way um so i think that changed you know norman lamb was one of the authors of that paper and he is probably still the only politician who has ever mentioned this diagnosis um but i think that was a change and i think what else is changing is that there are people in the public eye who don't talk about having stress or breakdowns anymore you will hear people explicitly saying, I have been diagnosed with BPD. And in some ways, you could kind of say, oh, they're talking about disordered personalities, that's not that helpful. But in other ways, I think you can have constructive conversations if people bring these issues into the public domain, whereas you can't really criticise something that no one's talking about. So I notice people doing that more, and I think the more people do that, then the more the stigma will come down.
I'll give you something though that's, uh, that's that doesn't quite fit with that. Instagram has recently banned the hashtag BPD. Um, has it? It has, yeah. So if you search that now, you won't get any pictures coming up. Um, and I think you know mm-hmm. you, you could argue that well that makes sense because people were sharing some quite explicit self harm images and you don't want that. But then often you can kind of think, well, BPD is a diagnosis that primarily affects women. Um, So three to one women are diagnosed compared to men. And you could probably argue, well, there's something about society doesn't like angry women. Society has a view of what women should be like. So that's it's often pathologized when people don't fit into that. So if you think like BPD as a hashtag has been banned, but things that are more traditionally male like antisocial personality disorder or things like do you remember the nick nominate phase where you'd video yourself drinking five pints you know? yes you can still get videos like that on instagram <laughs> so it's really weird that they can ban what is a diagnostic term but there's still things that are other um explicitly connected to harm that don't affect women as much and they are okay um so uh, I mean, by banning the hashtag BPD, doesn't that prevent and stop the conversation when it's really a conversation that needs to be had? Well, yeah, it does. Um, and I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, well, some people use this to talk in a way that's not helpful, so we will stop every conversation about this. And that doesn't seem to be an approach that they take to other um, things. I think I was trying out hashtags for, like, your neighbour to see if there were other things that seems a bit off that had also been banned, and I couldn't find anything to that extent. Eating disorder, I think, is another one that um, you won't get any hits from. Um, And again, like I said, it makes sense. But, you know, we've just had a presidential election where social media has been quite robust in yep. blocking particular posts. And I wonder if that approach could be taken to this hashtag that we filter harmful content while still allowing people who either identify this with this diagnosis and want to talk to other people or people who hate this diagnosis and want to talk about it with other people. Yep. I don't think we should stop people talking. I think that's a, a very blunt and hammer blow um, rather than some precision which we could use yeah no i absolutely agree and then moving on you sent me two articles way back one was the outsourcing of risk out of area placements for individuals diagnosed with personality disorder in the uk and then the other one was what does the court of protection need to know about borderline personality disorder for the listeners would you be able to do a brief summary of each of those articles um i'll I'll take you through the court of protection one first okay um and that came about because there was a guy in the court of protection this is is a um open justice reports on what goes on in the court of protection um so they were reporting on a case where somebody had that diagnosis and they recognised that nobody really talked about it, um, let alone ever kind of critique 
whether that diagnosis was appropriate. Uh, so they asked if I could write something that kind of was a rough guide to the diagnosis and what do people need to know. So within that article, what you'd find is something around the diagnostic criteria, but also a kind of what the weaknesses of that diagnosis are. So like I said, if you need to hit five out of nine criteria, if you have got criteria one to five and I have got criteria five to nine, that's us with the same diagnosis, but we only share one characteristic. So you've got to wonder about a diagnosis that can have such disparate presentations in it. Equally, there's some research to say that if you can be diagnosed with one type of personality disorder, you could probably be diagnosed with another two as well. So again, is this a really refined box that we're putting in, or is it actually very messy? Um, I wanted the Court of Protection to not think about people as being disordered and having a problem that is embedded in them, but to think that people had come from really traumatic backgrounds and that what we were seeing was their past experiences being acted out in the present, um, and that if we could hold on to that, we might be a bit more empathic in how we respond to people. I also wanted people to think about how this diagnosis comes about. So there's a lot written about how this diagnosis is often used with people that nobody knows what to do with. Um, So certainly in my experience, a hint of complexity in somebody's presentation, especially if they're a woman and especially if they use self-harm. This is the diagnosis that they're going to get. And I think Sometimes people kind of say, well, is it autistic spectrum disorder? Is it ADHD? Is it um, some other personality disorder? And I I often try and get people to kind of think, the the diagnostic process isn't that refined. It's often a sense of, I'm I'm finding this difficult, so that is the diagnosis I'm going to use. I think I gave the example of um, two therapists talking, and the one says, I'm having trouble with my patient with personality disorder. And the other guy says, well, how do you know they've got personality disorder? And the person says, because I'm having problems with them. And that can be how that diagnosis comes about, in my experience. So that article was just very much about take this diagnosis with a pinch of salt when when it's coming up in court and, and really try and understand how it has come about um, and try and kind of keep some empathy for people rather than thinking of them as being disordered. I think that was the thrust of that one. Okay. And then the other one, um, it kind of takes the idea of what I was saying about out-of-area placements being used as a way of relieving the NHS of the risk that people might do something untoward on their patch. Um, so <laughs> this covers a lot of what I've been talking about already. But just kind of like go into meetings and kind of saying, you know, we could work with this person in the community. Um, we know that the dangerous things that they're doing in hospital, they don't do in the community. So let's let's try and work with them here. Let's try and commission something so that they can stay at home. And people would generally go, we think you're right, but we're going to send them to this hospital anyway. And, okay. and sometimes they would do it. Um, in fact, they wouldn't, you know, 
whenever they did it, they never told anybody, you know, it, it's kind of against nice guidelines what we're doing here. They always kind of said, this is where the expertise is, this is where you're going to be looked after. Um, and sometimes they believed it, and very often they didn't. So <laughs> this article was just trying to get that opinion out there into the world. Um, it's something that doesn't get talked about. What I was really pleased to see is when Simon Wesley did his review of the Mental Health Act, he said that we are restricting people, we are detaining people because clinicians and organisations are nervous. We've stopped managing the risks to our patients and we're managing the risks to ourselves. And that's what I see happening with people who have these problems and get sent to private hospitals. It is very much not about the benefit that it will do for them and it's very much more about the benefit that it will have for the local organization yeah um, so yeah and we should stop it we should not do that um we should work with people in the community yeah no i i completely agree with that because there seems to be more and more people being detained in a hospital particularly at the moment when arguably they could be treated in the community with the right level of support mm-hmm. and that's the thing is that these private hospitals you will probably spend a quarter of a million pounds to treat one person there for a year and if that treatment was brilliant then it'd be all right so it would feel like it's worth it but i see people being sent there with nobody optimistic that it's going to make a difference. So that's a million pounds a year for four people to get treatment nobody's very optimistic about. And just think what we could do in the community with that. Just think about if we didn't spend as much money on inpatient treatment and spent a lot more on what we know is effective for people. How much money would we save? How much difference could we make to people's lives? Absolutely. And, and that's definitely what we need to be doing. Yeah, and if people want to read those two articles after hearing this episode where would they be able to find them here oh well hopefully you're going to stick a link to them steve um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the court of protection one i, I don't know how you get hold of that one that easily luckily i've got a fairly obscure name so if you google Kia Harding, <laughs> most of what i have written comes up um my uh, my website for the the company where I try and help people avoid going into long term hospitalisation um, that's got a blog in it so there's lots of stuff I've written on there and the out of area placement one um, that was in the Lancet so if you just google that title again if you google me you'll be able to access it, you need to log into the Lancet site but it is free to access so check them out Yes, and I will put a link on the Legal Wolf LinkedIn page and my own LinkedIn page as well. Um, finally, just for a bit of light relief. Um, mm-hmm. what, has, this, has this not been funny enough? So <laughs> <laughs> what would your dream job be and why? Oh, if I wasn't doing this? Yeah. Do it have to be something totally unrelated? Um, well, it can be related, oh. it can be unrelated, it can be absolutely anything. Um, well, I, I suppose recently I've, I've started doing my own podcast. Um, so I, I'm noticing that I quite enjoy getting people talking about different things and exploring ideas. So... This part of me thinks that I would have 
kind of been all right kind of going into teaching and perhaps not so much the kind of marking of essay side, but the, the talking to people and helping them develop and interrogate ideas. Um, so I, oh, I, what that job would have been in t- exactly, I don't know. But something where I kind of got to meet lots of people and mm-hmm. talk about interesting and dynamic ideas with them. And finally, I, what's I, the I, name I, of the <laughs> podcast? So the podcast we have just started, it's called The Wrong Kind of Mad. Um, it focuses on what's called personality disorder. And I co-host it with Holly Berrigan, who is a lived experience practitioner that I work with a lot. She's absolutely brilliant. Uh, and we talk to people who are influential in the world of what is called personality disorder. So the other day we talked to Nicola Thorpe, who um, was in Coronation Street. Um, she's a broadcaster. She's a big campaigner for women's rights issues. And she's probably the first person in the public eye that I've seen talk about having this diagnosis. So we did a mm. great one with her the other day. Our next one coming up is with a guy called Joel Paris, and he's probably the most vocal person for saying, don't put people with this diagnosis in hospital at all. Um, so mm. we, we we explore that view with him and how people interpret and misinterpret it. So if you're interested in this area, it's it's pretty interesting. If not, we hope it's interesting anyway. Fantastic. Well, that has been a fascinating insight and it was a pleasure having you on, Kay. Thank you very much. No problem. Pleasure to do it. Thanks a lot, Steve. And that concludes today's episode. Please feel free to leave feedback, good or bad, because there's no such thing as bad feedback on your views of the episode with Kia Harding. And also, please like the LinkedIn page, Legal Wolf, to receive further updates on future episodes being released. Thank you.